All right, shall we talk about more old computers? Sure. To get me back on my and give me some more raw material for my podcast editing business. Um. All right the the Mac Portable. I have one. I have one here, and then I discovered that you have one too. I do. It's oh boy. Wow, because Stephen Hackett doesn't have one. So the Mac Portable, a a first attempt, didn't really go well, and then they uh, did something else. Yeah, it's one of those computers that probably makes sense in a world without laptops. Like if you think of it uh, in the world where Compact Computer, like the the, yeah. the company named Compact, like that, that was a play on Compact as in small, mm-hmm. and their first computer, if you looked at it now, it looks like a suitcase. Yeah, Os- you- the Osborne is the famous one too, which was a suitcase computer. Yeah, right. But you can actually bring it somewhere and it will mm-hmm. run off of a battery. And, you know, in, in that context, if you look at the Macintosh Portable, which is very aptly named, it is a Macintosh and it is indeed portable. You say, oh, I get it. It's like a suitcase computer, but the suitcase is more like a uh, a valise, maybe? Is that what it's called? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, a br- it's not a computer you can fit in a briefcase, but it is a computer the size of a large briefcase. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's very heavy and very big, but... The miracle at that point was that all that stuff, at least to me as a, as a young child, all the stuff that you know from a Macintosh now is in a thing that you can use when it's not plugged in. Um, yeah. And it had a black and uh, a monochrome screen, but so what? So did my Mac, right? Yeah. And it didn't have a mouse. It, it had a, a trackball, but it had otherwise all the same stuff inside it as the computer that it was based on and had a gigantic floppy drive and a hard drive and a lead acid battery and a essentially full-sized keyboard with normal keyboard keys on it it's an alps Um, keyboard it's great it's a great keyboard i was shocked at how good the keyboard is and the thing that always stood out to me about about this it had that special apple something now i'm not saying this was a good computer but the special apple something in this case is the active matrix lcd screen all the other portable computers that had lcd screens had terrible ghosting and ghosting is a much bigger deal on a computer that always has a mouse cursor because Mm. you're constantly moving this little thing around the screen and ghosting would leave this trail of little mouse cursors all over the place but this thing had a very expensive at the time you know super advanced technology active matrix screen with transistors behind each one of the pixels so it could actually turn them on and off very quickly and you'd move the mouse around and it would look essentially normal. And that was the the ultimate luxury in portable. And that's what mm-hmm. put this in a class above all of the lesser portable computers. That aside, you're still left with a 16-pound computer that you can kind of lug around that you would definitely not want to put on top of your lap because it would probably cut off circulation to your legs. That's true. It's true. I was thinking in this era, I had a... I had a Mac SE and I had one of those padded carrying cases. So that was my portable Mac was <laughs> just put it in the case, put it on, bring it on the plane, whatever, take it wherever you're going, plug it back in. But this was meant to be, like you said, it did have a battery. You didn't actually have to plug it in. It was more portable than having to take your Mac and your keyboard and your mouse and move it all, your mouse pad. But still. Yeah, it didn't make that much sense as a as a product. Um, I mean, I guess if you were desperate and had to use Mac software in a place where you couldn't plug in, this was your only option. It was also astronomically expensive, by the way. It was, I forget what the original price was, but if you convert it to today's dollars, it's it doesn't make any sense. Let me see. Let me look up on Wikipedia. Um, it was seven thousand three hundred dollars at the time, which is roughly equivalent to fifteen thousand dollars today. Yeah. So you really paid through the nose for the privilege of lugging this thing around. And and looks-wise, it looks a lot like a 2C, 
mm-hmm. but all of a sudden with this other screen hinged up on the thing. Flap, flap opens up with the screen on it. Yeah, you're right. I do have a 2C here too. They are, they're, they're similar. Um, the, uh, let's see what, anything, anything more you want to talk about, about the Mac portable? Mm-hmm. I want to mention the PowerBook 100 only then there are people at Apple who are like, wow, Sony can make great miniature <laughs> things for cameras. So let's, uh, have them do that with a Mac portable. And they basically said to Sony, please use your geniuses to make this smaller. But of course their geniuses are camera geniuses and they don't work on computers nor do they work on contract jobs for other companies. So some other yo-yos at Sony built the PowerBook 100 which is essentially a Mac portable made smaller. It is exactly what they asked for, but you compare it to the the other uh PowerBooks of that era and it's an outlier because it's not really one of those PowerBooks. It's a Mac a little Mac portable. But it was smaller than the other one, like the real, yeah. the quote-unquote real PowerBooks. It was smaller. And right? lighter. So it did, did have that going for it. And, and no it floppy is drive. a fairly <laughs> impressive, uh, ta- you know, effort in miniaturization. And that was the one thing to recommend it. It gave you a glimpse of uh, the future where Mac laptop computers could actually be smaller than the real 100 series ones, the 140, 170, all that. Yeah. Um, anyway, Mac Portable. It's... uh. It's interesting. I don't know if the one that I have works. I assume it doesn't. Yeah, I assume the same about mine. Although lead acid batteries last a long time. I I bet you could probably take the lead acid battery out and replace it with like a UPS battery because a lot of those are lead acid too. Yeah. Maybe it would get going again. But no, I've never turned mine on. No. I did clean the keys though. I took them all off and cleaned them and cleaned underneath them and all that. And Mm -hmm. that keyboard is great. I it, It is such a unique computer that it needs to remain intact. But I would not be surprised if people like strip it for the Alp switches because... It's really good. The other novel feature of this is, you know, so it had a trackball, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the button for the trackball was essentially a small space bar. Yep. Which is very strange. I don't think there's ever <laughs> been a computer, uh, certainly not a Mac computer since then, where the, the essentially the mouse button was a keyboard key. Like, structured the same way, functioned the same way, a little plateau, just like the space bar. It's just shorter, which is, I mean, it doesn't... It, it makes some sense, but it's just not what we do. Like no. trackpads never had keyboard buttons for for their keys. Uh, mice don't have keyboard buttons on top of them on the Mac anyway. Uh, kind of weird. Weird, weird computer. So the next one is basically about power computing. I might pick a, a model, but essentially it's a way to talk about power computing, which was I think the definitive clone maker and also the very strange era of Mac clones. Yeah, it was, that was kind of a fun era because setting aside the cloning business itself and how economically viable it was for Apple, uh, Power Computing was a, com- a company that was free to do everything that Apple wouldn't. So Apple was a big company. It had an existing customer base. It had standards to uphold. Its priorities were different than certain other you know customers. And so Power Computing probably wisely decided to target the enthusiast market and what the enthusiast market wanted had never been provided by Apple. Like if you think about the, you know, personal computer enthusiasts, the overclockers, the people who build their own PCs, right? Think of the Mac equivalent of them. They want the most power for the least money. They want the most number of options. They want, you know, they want to, to be able to make it super fast and they'll pay for that. But they also want something that's flexible and, you know, er- everything in it needs to be upgradable and powerful and power computing was somewhat hampered by building its computers essentially on top of technology uh, that Apple had already developed, you know, from the hardware and obviously the software. But they did everything they could 
to serve a market of people who wanted their Macs to be more like hot rods, right? So they're, they were always bragging about whatever their fastest computer was. If they were three megahertz higher in top-end clock speed than Apple, they would put it on a T-shirt, right? They also they, got, because they didn't have the volumes that Apple required for the channel, they got um, the faster processors faster than Apple because they could get they could buy a 1,000 of them, and Apple wouldn't buy them until there were 100,000 of them. Yeah. And so they, they had a, because they weren't Apple, they had this advantage over Apple for the people who really cared. And they, that's true of everything. Everything that, that they would consider doing, they could. They were, you know, they were more nimble than Apple. They could do things more quickly than Apple. If some new thing came out, they would get on it immediately. Apple's product cycles were longer, whatever long they were. Like, oh, there's going to be a new upgrade to this line, and we have to plan it, and we have to plan the marketing. Power computing acted more like a PC vendor of the day, which is as soon as a better part is available, stick it in the computer, upgrade it, sell a new one. Like there wasn't like this year-long plan to roll out this big uh, upgrade to their products. They did everything that sort of uh, enthusiasts wanted Apple to do, but a, a company of that size and that stature would never do. So it made them kind of a darling of the Mac enthusiasts right up until, you know, cloning almost killed Apple. But, but up until that point, it's like, uh, I want a Mac and I want it to be officially supported, but I want... A hot rod mac and i can't pay for apple's hot rod mac even if they ever make one like whatever the you know 2fx is, predates that but i think it was the first hot rod computer apple would make great computers and they'd be great when they come out but then they'd sit there for a while and while they're sitting there power computer would be power computing would be offering you more ram or bigger hard drives or a faster cpu or whatever so they were definitely exciting and they were also not shy about fighting in the sort of Mac PC wars. They would yeah. make T-shirts denigrating Intel. They would uh, make fun of Microsoft. They would do all the sort of impolitic things that Apple would try not to do. And Apple's and that, marketing at that period was extremely sedate, right? It's, it's, it was a, a very refined, we're classy, we're above it all, we're kind of... And I remember getting the letters at Mac user because I did the letter column for a while there. And every, the letters were always like, why isn't Apple's marketing better? Why isn't Apple aggressive about marketing the Mac? And power computing, you know, it was. It was a, it was like night and day from Apple's tasteful white background Garamond <laughs> kind of advertising campaigns. So one of the two famous T-shirts the power computing had had a slogan on it that said, we're fighting back for Mac. And it was this, you know, power computing uh, T-shirt wearing character, you know, bashing Intel and showing that they had a higher clock speed or whatever. But that T-shirt said multiple things at once. One is like, we're better than Intel PCs. We are the best of the best. But two is we're fighting back for Mac because Apple won't. <laughs> like essentially, we're, we are, we're willing to get in there with our fists swinging and tell you Macs are the best. And you know why they're the best? Because we made them the best. And Apple's not going to get into this fight. And Apple's not going to get into, you know, this ticky-tack megahertz war with Intel. But we are, because that's who power computing is. And that got people excited. I remember, you know, it was a Macworld Boston where they were, you know, shooting T-shirts into the stands and giving away things. And their giant booth bungee, was giant, giant crane with a bungee jump on it, too. Yeah. So the power computing logo on top of a big crane with a bungee jump attached that was right yeah. next to it. They were they were definitely a happening company for a young uh, Apple enthusiast, uh, and the computers themselves were good. Like they were exactly what you would think they were. They weren't as elegant as Macs. They were a little bit more like hot rods, maybe a little bit more temperamental. Uh, they did cost less than the equivalent Mac, and you could configure them the way you wanted them. So it's essentially everything that everyone wanted. I don't. I'm willing to deal with a computer that is not as carefully planned 
And I know it's not going to be as pretty, and they weren't. They were they looked a lot like kind of ugly PCs. But in exchange, I'll get to use my favorite operating system, and I'll get to buy a computer that can run whatever my favorite game is better than Apple's for less money. So did you ever have one? I didn't because I'm too much of a snob, and I could never stomach owning a computer that looked like that. Actually, no. I At the time they were around... The Macs, had, let me tell you, the Macs weren't much better in that era because I had a PowerWave tower and it was not particularly more, uh, less classy than a beige G3 tower or mm-hmm. a beige, or I guess a beige like 71, 8100, something like that. I, I like the original line of PowerPC computers. Maybe we'll talk about them another time. Um, and they looked a bazillion percent classier to me than these power computing ones, even though obviously the power computing computers were faster. But the real problem was at that time, I still didn't have enough money for any kind of computer. So yeah. I was either using a computer my parents had bought for me or a computer, then I transitioned directly into a computer that work bought for me. I did not have the money to buy any Macintosh until the blue and white uh g3 so that was the first mac i think i bought with my own money um so yeah it, it, maybe if i had the money and i was desperate i would have ended up with the power computing thing but in my heart of hearts like i i wanted an 8100 i didn't, didn't want a power computing thing, yeah even even if it was faster one of the great things about the power computing stuff was that it was uh configurable and other computer companies were doing configurability you could call dell and say i want this much ram and this you know whatever and they would just build that one for you and ship it to you it, but this was an era where, like, Apple didn't really do that. There were some standard configurations, and then you could upgrade it yourself. Um, Power claims, at least, to be the first company that actually allowed a, you to configure on the web and order it that way, which I did. My Power Computing, PowerWave, was a was a web-configured build-to-order. But that was the thing that, you know, Apple, all of Apple stuff you can configure to order now, and it's standard across the industry. But in that era, it was... A, it was a very different feeling to be like, pick what you want, pick the specs you want. The power wave, you could pick whether you want a new bus, a new bus slot adapter or just PCI slots that you could choose. Yeah. And it's because they were a fast moving company. Uh, Apple had a retail strategy and I don't remember if they had an online store or whatever, but at, the, at that point, but like doing anything like that inside Apple required just more people to sign off on it and more meetings and more time. And if you're a scrappy little upstart, you can say, we're going to put a star on the web and we'll just make everything configurable and just do it. Uh, being small and nimble has its advantages. I mean, I guess we should talk about the, uh, the, the, the entire idea of doing clones because that is part of this story too, which is Apple decided that it would be a better idea. And I know we talked about this a little bit with Daystar. They decided like theoretically that having other hardware companies uh, would allow the Mac as a market to push back against, uh, against Intel and Microsoft. But the reality seemed to be that they were just kind of uh, squabbling over the existing base of Mac users and stealing Apple's high-end, high-margin users away. Yeah, and, and in the case of power computing, they were stealing Apple's most enthusiastic customers, customers that would, like I said, or would have been willing to get a less elegant computer if it cost a little bit less money. Uh, and when you're dividing up that pie, every piece that you sacrifice is, you know, a minus for you. They weren't really growing the market, which is what I think Apple hoped they would do. And if honestly, if Apple weren't so famously beleaguered at that point, maybe cloning could have grown the market. Mm. But at the time they did it, it was just let's, you know, fight over these scraps. And what you've got left when Apple is going down the drain are high-end, you know, core high-end users who just need a Mac to do their job because of some software and are willing to pay through the nose for it. And you've got the rabid enthusiasts. 
And those are the people who are actively still buying Macs. And there may, there's lots of other people with an installed base, but they're maybe the ones who are going to take a wait and see attitude to see maybe if Apple goes out of business. Right. right. And, and, you know, so it's, it wasn't a good situation. And, and on top of all of that, a lot of the hardware that these clone makers were selling had major components that were essentially Apple designed, whether it's the motherboard right. or the chips that are on it or whatever. Like, it's, it's not like they were starting from scratch. They got to piggyback on the R&D and the development effort that Apple had already done for their computers. And they just got to sort of doctor it up with their own modifications, which they were very able to do and, and innovated in that space. But it was it was nice for them that they didn't have to do that themselves, whereas Apple had to start from a blank sheet of paper and build the next computer. Yeah, and then as fun as that era was, and it believe me, it was really fun to cover it. Um, it's very clear that what Steve Jobs wanted to do with Apple, like, I mean, he had to do what he did. He had to, he had to say, no, this doesn't make any sense. We need to, and, and I think the fortunate thing is uh, that Apple did not just kill all the third-party hardware, but improved its hardware game. Like, I think that was an important part of it is that it wasn't just Steve Jobs coming in and killing the clones, but also Apple Apple's hardware got better after that, which is good because we well, didn't have any choice anymore. <laughs> its conception of products got better. The actual hardware inside them, eh, you could go either way, but like their idea, their their concept for each new product, like the concept for the iMac is a better concept than for, you know, the beige G3 tower or whatever, right? inside very similar parts but it's all about how you package it up what features mm -hmm. you decide what price you put it out on and that that makes the product um and, and i bet like if the if steve jobs had come on board and cloning was in the midst of massively expanding apple's market share maybe he would have had a different opinion of it but it wasn't so you know nope. get that gotta get that like if, if he came on board because next you know next was more agile in that regard of saying we're going to sell hardware, then we're just going to license our OS, like just trying different things to work. But by the time again, it was clear that cloning wasn't working. And again, with, with Apple being beleaguered, like the the argument for cloning was that companies that won't buy for, for a Macs because there's only a single supplier, may, now they'll be more willing because look at all these different suppliers. But those same people just looked at the situation and said, yeah, now I have multiple suppliers, but I don't, I'm not confident you're all going not you're all not going out of business right apple may go under and if apple goes under the cloners will go under because they're basically parasites on apple because they don't do everything from scratch and they don't own the os and even though there are more suppliers everything is so dire i'm no more confident than i was before so i'll just hold off on that mac purchase so that's yet another reason why cloners were not expanding the pie all right let's move on to the imac g4 i have one right behind me and it is a, uh, I, I think, is it like the most Johnny Ive of designs in some ways, where it's sort of this idealized white and chrome object with a floating flat panel display? I think it's a beautiful object that had a hard act to follow if you think about having to follow the, the G3 iMac. Yeah, that was the challenge because the, the G3 iMac was iconic, but it was also, uh, by the time the G4 came out, it was spanning a sort of hardware generational divide. CRTs yeah. were on their way out. LCDs are on the way in. And CRTs so dominated the design of all Macs up to that point, and especially the, you know, the original iMac, you can't, like that design is dead as soon as the CRT leaves it. It doesn't, like, if you tried to make that same design without the CRT, it would, what do you do, put a fish tank in there? There's just a huge amount of empty space. And Johnny Ive would never do that because, every, as we know, every form has to be true to itself. You would never make something shaped like a gumdrop when the screen was actually a flat panel. So that was their big pitch for this computer, and they talked about how they struggled over it and 
you know, Johnny took long walks with Steve and they debated, uh, you know, how can, how can we, how can we do this? Like this, the LCD monitors are so thin and beautiful. If we stick the computer to the back of the monitor, that will take away from the thin, we had a thin monitor, but now you just made it thick again. So we don't get to appreciate how thin it is, right? But we do need the parts of the computer. So what do you do with that in there? Innovation as expressed in the keynote was let's let the screen be as thin as it possibly can. So we can appreciate, yes, LCD screens are thin. And let's let the guts of the computer be true to themselves, which is they are the stuff that makes the computer, the guts. They can be horizontal and fastened to the ground. And then let's just connect them with this amazing arm. And so you got this two-piece computer where there's the computer part, which is earthbound, and you've got the screen, which floats, and it has a little clear uh, border around it, connected by what I think is one of the most amazing pieces of hardware ever to ship on a personal computer, that stainless steel arm. It made this computer, which was not Apple's most expensive model, it made this computer look and feel so much more expensive than it was. I remember being amazed that for whatever it was at the time, 1400 bucks or whatever, you could buy this computer that had this arm on it. It looked like, I don't know, part of a Swiss watch or something. It was just beautiful and it felt good and it felt expensive and it did its job. And I feel like that is the star of this entire design. Yes, it was impressive that the guts of the computer could fit into a, go- a dome that had less volume than the G4 Cube was one of its claims to fame was like, you know, it actually is very small inside there and, but still big enough for a CD. And yes, the screen does float in your reposition and that's great. But that arm, that arm is amazing. Uh, I don't think we've seen it's equal. Even, even the, I'm sitting in front of it right now. God help me. The $1,000 stand for the pro display XDR is not nearly as impressive as that arm. And that arm came free with the computer. Yeah. No, the arm is the arm is uh, a remarkable piece of engineering. I can see why, you know, in the end, the screens kept getting bigger, and that means the physics of holding that thing up got more and more difficult. But part of me, when I look back at that, the next iteration of iMac, which is the super thick, flat edge, floating screen iMac, not that different from what we have today. It is a little sad, right? Like, I understand the engineering and design choices that go into something like that and the sheer physics of putting a larger screen on it. But it is it is disappointing in a way because the having, having no computer, I get it, but, like, the instinct to have the floating screen and have it be as thin and light as possible, um, they went another way, and we never saw its like again. Yeah, the ergonomic advantage of that, I'm so, I'm so sad that they never went back to that. So that screen didn't just go up and down like a little bit, like my stupid thousand dollar monitor stand. It went up and down a lot. Like you could practically put that monitor so its chin was touching your desk, and you could raise it all the way up, and it could rotate side to side. Like it was it was extremely flexible. And people I knew who had this computer weren't shy about grabbing the big frame around that monitor and just moving it and say, pointing it at a person and putting it down and putting it up because it felt so good to move it. It felt like this is part of the product. I mean, it was like, it was like adjusting, well, I'm going to say adjusting the mirror in your car, but like done that routinely. You never thought twice about it. It was part of using the computer that you understood you could move the monitor. Pretty much every Apple monitor since then, it's like, well, you get it set up and if it's adjustable at all, you set it up how it's supposed to be and you leave it there. It's not the type of thing where you're just expected to grab it and move it and show somebody sitting next to you something and move it back and move it around. And the the beauty of this arm made that a feature of this product. And I think it was a feature that was used and liked and missed when it was gone. 
It may yet come back. I don't know. I mean, the Surface Studio is a good example of a product that while it's not floating, it's got this kind of hovering above the computer block and adjustable kind of thing, which I keep thinking might be a future iMac direction if if they do want to make an iMac where you need a different ergonomic approach to it, you know, if you want to touch it or use a, a stylus on it or something like that. Yeah, those things are single axis and they kind of have to yeah. be because if once you're once you're leaning on or drawing on the screen, you can't have it be super loosey-goosey. This was obviously you're just pointing it and all it needed to do was hold its position. It did not need support of the weight of your hand or your palm leaning on it. So something that's going to go down into a drafting table needs something sturdier. And I can imagine removing one axis of motion and say, okay, it can go up and down, but you can't like tilt it or rotate it without rotating the whole computer. Um, yeah, that's a challenge. If Apple ever takes on that challenge, it'll be interesting to see how they address it. Surface Studio takes a fairly conservative and straightforward approach that seems to work fine. I wonder if Apple will be happy with that or they will try to do something more. But again, getting back to my stupid $1,000 monitor stand, it has a hinge on the back that goes up and down, and there's also a rotation axis to rotate the screen. Uh, but that hinge is not satisfying to move. It feels it doesn't feel gritty, but it doesn't feel smooth either. And it's it's not the type of thing that makes me want to grab my monitor and move it around. And that thing, like, that thing costs a thousand dollars. Costs like more than half the price of this computer originally did. That's why I look back at this arm and say, you know, what what an amazing engineering, manufacturing, pricing achievement. Now these arms did get loose over time. You know, my, my sister has one of these. Uh, I think she has the smaller screen model. And I was visiting her house a few years ago, and I moved that arm around. It's not it's not as tight as it used to be. Maybe it just needed some screws adjusted or whatever. So it wasn't. It wasn't infinitely durable, but it lasted the, the whole lifetime, useful lifetime of the computer, which is really all that you can ask. Okay, John. <laughs> it's G4 Cube time. Um, is design how it works or how it looks? Because this looks great. This poor computer. Uh, it gets a bad rap, and in many ways it was a bad computer, but not for the reasons I think everyone thinks it was a bad computer. Um, what did it have going for it? Obviously, it was a beautiful piece of modernist sculpture uh you know it it was the design era where apple was taking clear plastic and sticking it over non-clear plastic so everything had sort of this glossy candy coating they were doing it with their peripherals with their computers this was that taken to the ultimate form it was a little computer computing cube covered in like a centimeter thick of clear plastic with all of the sort of jeweled reflect, refraction type of uh, visual effects that that made, um, the computer itself was like suspended in midair in there. Of course, you know, you could turn it upside down and the handle popped out and you can pull out the uh, original naked robotic core like it's the uh, core of a nuclear reactor. Um, inside there was, in theory, all the parts that you needed for a modern Macintosh computer, again, including an optical drive. Just like on the iMac G4, they found a way to stick that very large optical drive in a design such that it didn't dominate. It was a beautiful slot in the top, very minimal. Uh, and the, the computer itself was just big enough to house that drive mechanism. Uh, this was definitely a Steve Jobs design because he, like me, hated fan noise. This computer has no fans inside it. The original Mac had no fans inside it. This computer is a lot hotter than the original Mac, so they had to come up with a solution. So it uses chimney cooling. It's got a little opening in the back where air can come in. And the super hot computer makes all the air inside it hot, and that hot air rises through a vent in the top that makes the whole thing look like a tissue box, and that pulls in cool air from the bottom, so cool air comes in the bottom, hot air comes out the top through these little vents. 
and that's the way this computer cooled itself and now it has no fan noise but it had a spinning hard drive in there so you're gonna hear something <laughs> you know it's not like it was totally silent but it was still very impressive um the packaging and marketing of this entire computer it came with those little uh again clear plastic over innards uh, the little orb speakers that were little spheres mm-hmm. right and you would pair it with the apple cinema display with the very thick translucent feet on the side and the little stand that you know lean back stand type thing this entire system looked like a computer from the future it looked like a movie computer it looked like something someone would do in a mock-up or a sharper image catalog like this can't possibly be real but it was a real system and it was a pretty okay computer. It was expensive, but the problems with it were all the problems that, you know, Steve Jobs don't, doesn't think are didn't think are were problems with the computers. Not really upgradable. Why would you ever need to upgrade it? We put everything you need in this computer. It's all it's fine the way it is, right? Uh, you know, obviously no slots or anything that normally come with computers that start to push into this price range. And then a bunch of features that seem really cool, but weren't actually that great so the slot loading drive that's very cool but practically speaking drives with trays are more reliable and easier to deal with uh vertical optical drives optical drives can work in a vertical orientation but it's not the usual and there are slightly different characteristics physical characteristics of drives operating that in that orientation that could cause problems uh cooling with no fans should work fine but if it starts to get too hot in there there's nothing that can be done to make it better, except eventually your computer gets too hot and it turns off. And then finally, this is the worst as far as I'm concerned, the capacitive power button. <laughs> it was super cool that you could put your finger on the top of this you know, centimeter of thick, clear plastic, and it would just turn off when you touched it. You didn't press any button in. There was no button. There was no seams. But you could also accidentally brush that button and it would put your computer to sleep, or you could brush that button and it would wake it up. And in my experience, very frequently, this computer would go to sleep and you couldn't wake it up. And that uh. was bad. And sometimes it would just turn itself off and you didn't mm-hmm. know why. James Thompson says that he once uh, stayed at a guest room that had a, a G4 cube in it. And, a, and in the middle of the night, it would just wake up. <laughs> and he's like, it was- Did we move? Did we cause, did we anger it in some way? Yeah, I, I reviewed this computer for Ars Technica, so I had this in my house for a while and lived with it, and it was like the machine was haunted. It did, not, it did not give you a reassuring feeling. It seemed like a computer that you were afraid to touch and that had a mind of its own and very often did things unexpected that were bad, like turn itself on or just turn itself off. And I was always worried about the heat, and it just it just was not sort of a reliable yeah. computer you know, it, like it's well designed as a piece of art, not particularly well designed as a computer. And the final sort of nail in its design coffin, this design of whatever this is, lucite or acrylic or whatever the clear plastic is around the entire thing, it's like one big injection molded piece. Like you could, when you took the core out, you looked and that plastic thing was just one piece. And apparently it was at the time, and maybe it still is for all I know, very difficult to manufacture that piece of plastic because it's clear. So any kind of internal flaw during the sort of molding process or whatever they used to make this plastic was visible because it's all clear. And every single person who had one of these could see if they looked real close, quote unquote, cracks in the plastic. Now, in my experience with the one I had, they weren't actually cracks, but they were flaws in the material. So instead of it just being clear all the way through, you'd see these little hairlines around the edges of where the holes were, you know, for the drive and everything. And just 
or where the edges, you know, where it turned at the right angle to go from the surface, the top surface down to the side surface. And in a computer, you know, who's who has one of the one of the main benefits of the computer was how beautiful it was. If you're going to sell this me this computer and tell me you will love looking at it because it looks like a beautiful jewel, you can't have flaws in that jewel. Like diamonds are rated by the number of what are they called? Uh, inclusions. Inclusions, and every single G4 cube had plenty of inclusions. And the exact type of person who would value the merits of this computer enough to deal with the problems also is going to be super bothered by the inclusions. This was an included computer. The uh, big power brick, too. So it's a brilliant piece of engineering, but they also outsourced the power supply to a very large power brick. To be fair, the power brick was cool looking, too. It was. (laughs) It was an Apple-designed power brick. It was very large. Uh, but they did manage to fit a lot into this computer. And uh, to this day, I think the mechanism of getting the insides out, uh, oh. it, it was it was like the, the current uh, Mac Pro where you could get at all sides of it. But unlike the current Mac Pro, you could just pull that handle and yank the thing out and it came out in two seconds and it was very easy to do and it, it came right out. It wasn't a, a fidgety maneuver. They did it on stage. It was a cool, fun thing to do. This can, This is a computer that is more fun to demonstrate when it is off than to use when it's on. So this really, I mean, it feels like this was Steve Jobs' baby, like, and and almost, I, I dare to say, Steve Jobs' 20th anniversary Mac, where, you know, the CEO's prerogative to have a product exist uh, that maybe shouldn't have existed. But I think what's interesting is that um, despite that, when it was clear that it wasn't going to work, that people... You know, that it was unreliable and the people didn't want to buy it and it was it was too expensive and all of these things. They killed it pretty fast for for a pet project. I think this is one of those famous moments of Steve Jobs turning his opinion on a dime. Like they did release a press release where they said it may yet return, which I felt like was maybe like to make Steve not feel so bad. But um, but they did kill it like in a year. It was gone. Like it, it, it went from being the most amazing thing ever to being dead in a year. I don't know how few of them they sold, but any company, if you sell an incredibly small number of something that you plan to sell a lot of, like if your if your sales projections miss by you know six thousand percent, it's pretty easy to kill a product. I mean, so even if the CEO loved it, you can just say, "Look, the numbers don't lie." Now, to their credit, what Apple didn't do was say, "Let's kill this, but let's take another run at it. Let's make another computer just like right. this, but we'll do better the second time." Because fundamentally, the reason this computer failed aside from all the quirks that i just mentioned was it was made at a time when lcd screens were coming in and essentially the way to do this computer is the current imac a elegant single piece computer where the guts of the computer fit on the back of the screen that is less expensive than the big fancy tower but bigger and more capable than a laptop right this this sort of in between where it's a completely non-expandable miniature beautiful tower doesn't make any sense there are too many there are too many components on your desk for this like once it was combined into the iMac, it's like, ah, there, that's it. We can sell a fairly mm. expensive all-in-one computer that is simple and elegant that essentially fills the same sort of power band as this computer. And no one complains that the iMac is not upgradable and doesn't have slots and everything because it's so, it's so clear what it is. The fact that this was sitting on the, on the desk alongside the already expensive monitor and they were both expensive together, it was just wrong idea at the wrong time. And when they revisited this at all, they did it at the whole opposite end of the spectrum with the Mini, which is the cheapest Mac we've ever made. Right. 
uh, track switchers, bring your own monitor, not beautiful, translucent, expensive with its own satellite speakers, like totally not that at all. So this was just, this was a bad idea for a product at the time it was made. So after the first one didn't sell, the wisdom of Apple was not so much killing that one because obviously it was a stinker. The wisdom was, let's not take another run at this because we didn't just miss it by a little bit. We missed it by a lot. Yeah. Gruber has a theory, which I, I'm not sure I entirely buy it, although I think he's got a point, which is this product would have been better if it had been a G3 because the dealing with the heat was such an, an issue with this thing. And it was just it was so overloaded with technology and it couldn't handle it. And, you know, I countered him by saying they probably also should have not called it a Power Mac. If this would had been a different class of computer, I think maybe the reception might have been a little bit better. It's like, well, it's stylish and interesting, but it, it's not a Power Mac. The Power Mac is over there. Um, any thoughts about either of those theories? I don't think a G3 would have really helped that much because part of the appeal of this computer is like it's supposed to be a luxury item. Like it's styled mm-hmm. like a luxury item. It was priced like a luxury item. And luxury items should have some amount of power. They're not going to have the expandability of a full-fledged Power Mac. But if you're going to pay this amount of money and have this fancy thing, you don't want it to be, you know, you don't want it to underperform. It's like getting a car in your driveway that looks like a Lamborghini but has the performance of a Camry. Uh, that's not a product that anybody wants, right? Even if the, the you know, the Camry engine would be easier to deal with and have lower maintenance costs and produce less heat and noise, it's like it looks like a Lamborghini. It's got to perform like a Lamborghini. And maybe it's not the fastest thing in the world and maybe you can't haul any wood in it, but it has to, it has to perform like it looks. So this thing had to be powerful. Like the whole problem was the idea that you would have a small sealed standalone computer that is totally unexpandable, but provides 80 or 90% of the power of the big tower was an idea whose time had come and gone. And in the era this computer was made in, the correct solution was the iMac, which today you can crank up an iMac to maximum spec. And it's actually a very powerful computer. And again, people do not look at it and say, yeah, but I don't have any slots. You want slots, you know where to get them. Yeah. The iMac fills the role as so much simpler computer and with an integrated screen and a better price performance ratio. It is everything this computer wanted to be, but wasn't. All right. Um, the original iBook, interesting product, consumer laptop. I, I feel like the filling that fourth square is so much the story of this laptop. It is, it is also the, the Wi-Fi launch product, um, two particularly notable things. And a style that, you know, when the iBook was redesigned, it, was, it went back to looking like a normal laptop. But this first iBook was not. It was, it was conceived of as a consumer laptop. And I have some theories about why they didn't keep going down that route. But what do you think about the original iBook? So this is, I feel like this fills out most of the, the, uh, the era defined by the iMac, where Apple was making colorful, daring, uh, fun computers. Uh, so we talked about the uh, Blue and White uh, Power Mac G3 and, of course, the original iMac. This is the laptop that fits into that family, right? That's a straight line from iMac to Power Mac G3 to this iBook. You look at them all together and you say, yep, I can see how those things fit together. And furthermore, if I look at the software, the original Mac OS X, I can see how that all fits together. Uh, I see the family resemblance. These being the consumer models were even more daring. Not only did they come in a fun color, they came in multiple fun colors like the iMac did. And they were, you know, just the, the marketing shots were fanciful where they'd show the computer 
cracked open and facing down. No one ever uses a laptop like that, but it's Apple saying, we're so proud of how this mm-hmm. looks as a piece of art, as a piece of sculpture, that we're going to put it on the poster like this. And even though it has no bearing on how you will ever use it, isn't it cool looking? And you know what? People agree. They look at it and said, that is cool looking. I want that because it's cool looking. It had a handle, just like the Power Mac G3 uh, and like uh, at least one other laptop that Apple would make after that. And it looked cool. It, yes, it looked like a toilet seat. Yes, it looked like a purse. But it just plain looked cool. I, I remember when Apple was giving out posters on the big thick cardstock at yep. whatever Macworld Expo. These were very popular because even if you never – I never intended to buy one of these and have like six of these posters because it just plain looked cool. And it also looked rugged and durable and had all the features that you would imagine. It was priced right and all, all the things that it had like Wi-Fi appealed to the consumer segment. Now, overall, was this a, a product that really hung together in terms of performance and specs? Mm, it was a little underpowered. The screen wasn't that great. Like you could feel some of the cost that was pulled out of it. But it was absolutely carried by the industrial design, appearance, and fun. And Wi-Fi, right? Like all, yep. it, had, it had all the things that a consumer might want. And even if you bought this computer uh, and realized, oh, this is actually kind of pokey and the screen is kind of gross and this trackpad is a little small and it's my hands are kind of staining the plastic, you would still, you would still like that product the whole time you had it because you'd just be riding on the wave of the joy of owning and using this thing. Every time you opened mm-hmm. it up and closed it, it was just such a fun computer. Yeah, so I have a theory. Um, and my theory is that the reason that they didn't go this route with the fun consumer laptop after this is that there is not a consumer laptop market and certainly wasn't in that period as they were thinking of it. And let me know what you think of this theory. But my theory is basically... Um, laptops, you have to take them out of the world. A lot of people who buy a consumer laptop, what they're really looking for is a cheaper laptop, uh, whether you're a business or somebody who is going to take it to a meeting. And the iBook doesn't look like a computer you'd take to a meeting. It looks like a toy, which is great and fun for kids and families and whatever. My mom had one. It was great. I bought it for her. But I think the history of laptop design since this point suggests strongly that people want a boring laptop, even if it's low cost. They kind of want it to look like a laptop. And I can't help but think that it it's related to the fact that those laptops are also used by people in all sorts of contexts that are not, quote-unquote, consumer. Well, those places where you just described where this design has disadvantages, I think, especially in Apple's market, were more than offset it by the places where it had advantages. So... This is the type of computer that you can imagine being used in an ad agency filled with creative, beautiful people, right? And in fact, if you were a creative, beautiful person in an ad agency and you used it there, you would feel good about using it. Everyone would feel good about being in the meeting when you opened up your Tangerine iBook. You would feel good about being the person behind it because you're a creative, fun person. And obviously also in schools or anything that has to do with kids. These are fun-looking computers that you can imagine kids using in schools or in a computer lab. Like in those contexts... This design is perfect. In other contexts, it's not so much the the bold colors that really killed it, because you'll see people with, at least I do anyway, at work, with all sorts of weird, colorful cases and stickers and stuff on their Microsoft Surface things or on their Apple laptops. Like It's not uncommon to, to have that type of colorful frills on laptops in a business setting. 
But the design of this is kind of the last gasp of a laptop that could afford to not hug its components uh, with a death grip, right? Yeah. This has a lot of stuff. This has wings, uh, what do you call it, tail fins on it. This is like a car with tail fins. It has parts of its anatomy that do not serve any functional purpose that make it larger and more unwieldy just because they look cool. And that was a moment in time that could not last very long. Business users can't afford to have these giant tail fins on their laptops. It needs to fit into a bag. It needs to be small on the conference room table. And so the margins got pulled in on these things. It just so happens it also happened at the same time that Apple stopped making their laptops colorful. But I think they're two separate trends. And so this was a moment that came and went. Laptops pulled in their skin, and they also happened to lose their color. But I think Apple could make a somewhat colorful laptop today, and it would be fine. Uh, They make colorful phones, and professionals have no problems pulling them out. And like I said, most of the Apple laptops I see at work have some kind of colorful personality expressing sticker or decal on the back of them anyway, just because it's a canvas for people to express themselves. Yep, I agree. But but relentlessly, I think the pressure, as you put it, the pressure to pull in the margins because a quirky design, like people want it just to be smaller and thinner and lighter and fit in their bag better, like in the end, and they can put a sticker on it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think it's I think it's fascinating because it, it, I, I try to imagine a universe where Apple continued to make and other companies made more whimsical laptops for kids and families and stuff. Because they could have, but it just, the notebook market, the laptop market, very clearly did not go that direction. It's like, no, that's not what we want. What we want is a, a, a the least chunky rectangle you can give me. Yeah, the smallest box that will contain the components, right? So you have no room to have any yeah. hips. No hips, no curves, no empty space anywhere inside the thing. And... The, for the mar- as for the market for like ruggedized laptops for kids, it just seems that the sort of well, two things. One, the R and D to make an entirely separate computer ruggedized for a very small market is usually not there. So you just want to make one laptop that you can sell to all your customers instead of making a specially designed rugged fun one. And two, the naked robotic core principle, right? That definitely exists. Obviously, it exists way more with tablets right? and and phones, of course, where Apple makes the smallest tablet they can that can fit the insides. And then when you give it to a kid, you put it in armor, essentially. You put it in a big, fun, purple, squishy thing so that when they drop it on the floor, it doesn't break, right? You could do that with a laptop with the same theory. Like, Apple makes the smallest laptops you can make, and now you put some kind of case on it. It's just that current laptop designs do not lend themselves to to being encased in the same way as an iPad with no moving parts does. So, And, of course, come on, what kind of kid uses a laptop anyway? They use Chromebooks which are somewhat more ruggedized, but for the most part, I can imagine if you gave the kid a choice between an iPad and a laptop, at least until a certain age, they would prefer the iPad because who needs that keyboard anyway? Until a certain age, anyway. All right, uh, John, it's your time to rhapsodize about the SE30. The SE30! Let me speak of the SE30. 68030 processor inside a classic Mac form factor. Yeah, if this is kind of one of those time compression things where if you were living through the introduction of the Macintosh, the time from the first Macintosh to the second, from the second to the third, just seems like eons. In real time, it wasn't that long, right? When you, when you it, This is true of a lot of things when you look back on your life. 
you realize there was this three-year period that to you seemed like decades. And then after it was three decades that seemed like five years, right? And so the original Macintosh, defining the shape of the Macintosh clearly, uh, it loomed large in terms of form factor, personality, features. This is what a Mac was. Eventually, the Mac 2 came down the line, and it looked much more like a PC, and it had uh, you know, the horizontal body and the separate monitor, and it brought color, which is fantastic. But the Mac had been defined up to that point by this classic Mac shape and monochrome monitor, and the Mac 2 cost a hojillion dollars. And I, you know, I, I only could see one briefly if I went to just the right software store. I knew nobody who owned one. I was never going to own one because it just cost so much money, right? So into this world, we had a succession of computers that essentially looked like the original Mac, but had better stuff on the inside. At a certain point, the Snow White design language came in and the, the Mac stopped being original Mac beige. Uh, they got a little bit uh, more platinum with the plus. Then the SE came. And it was more or less a Snow White design language. And then sort of the last gasp of the original Macintosh design was this beautiful computer called the Mac SE30. It took that original Mac design, the proper Mac design, you know, the Mac, and put inside it guts that were just as good as the then current top of the line Mac 2 model that nobody could actually afford, the Mac 2X. And so you could never get a Mac 2X. I don't think I ever saw a Mac 2X in person. But you could get a SE30, maybe, probably, because, hey, it's just another little Mac. Another thing that factored into the SE30 was that by this point, if you had owned a succession of regular Macs, you had a bunch of peripherals that were made to work with a computer this size and shape. I myself had several hard drives that stacked under the computer. The SE30 would go right on top of those. Uh, the connectors on the back, the peripherals you may have, wherever it fit into your desk. Like, this was a Mac, but it was a super powerful Mac. It's as if you kept buying the same car, whether it's a VW Beetle or a Honda Civic, and when you first started buying them, they had 10 horsepower and they were fine, and the very last VW Beetle you bought had 1,200 horsepower. That's what this computer was like. On the outside, it looked the same. Hey, it's a VW Beetle. Yeah, But it was so much more powerful than the first one. Everything else about it was the same. Monochrome black and white screen. It had a floppy drive on the front. It's like, this is, this is just like your original Mac 128. What's the difference? Like, oh, you have no idea. It is so much more powerful than that original Mac. It just, it, 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 it would blow you away. And part of the beauty of it was that it did look the same. So it was the thing that you were used to just made better than you can ever imagine it being. And finally, it you know could compete with its brethren out there in the completely unaffordable world with their color monitors. And not only that, not only did this thing have amazing innards and do all these great things and run all your software much faster than you thought it was ever possible, lurking inside there was a surprising amount of power. So I, I got this computer in, in 1989 when it was introduced through a series of machinations involving my family that I don't understand why they let me pull off, but they did. Thank you, <laughs> Mom and Dad. Um... Got it with an educational discount. Long story. It was a big deal back then, too. That yeah, like that was the, a real... It was not like $100 off. It was a huge discount back in that day. Yeah. This computer was uh, basically equivalent to $9,000 in today's money for the base model. Right. So it was an expensive mm-hmm. computer. Educational discount made it, made a big deal. You could take this computer, like I did in 1989, and use it for years and years. So I used this computer from 1989 until 1997 or eight. So almost 10 years I used this computer, if I did that math right. How did I keep using a monochrome 
black and white nine inch screened computer for that long? How did I use it into the 90s when the internet was happening? Well, first of all, this I hooked a modem up to it because that's the thing you could do. But second and most importantly, I put a 24-bit color card inside this computer and attached an external 15-inch color monitor. So I had a 640 by 480 screen that supported millions of colors just like the big boy Mac 2s did. And I also had a black and white monochrome screen that I could use both of them at once. That's how this computer lasted me 10 years. That's what this computer did. Not only did it have 1,200 horsepower, but through the PDF slot, you could make it do amazing things. Mm Mm-hmm. I had when I bought this when I had this computer before I bought this computer I had dreams I used to have dreams about computers all the time I used to dream that I would get a Mac that looked like a Mac but inside it would be a grayscale screen that was one of my dreams and the second one inside it would be a color screen Apple would never make a computer in this form factor with a color screen the color classic was an entirely different shape beast right but with this computer I could almost fulfill that dream by installing a color card and not just a CGA color card not just an EGA color card but full 24 bit color it was amazing and beautiful and like you know it, it, again when i if i before i did the math I'm like i must have used this computer for twice as long as i used my mac pro nope it just seemed twice as long because the whole world was moving on and computers were getting faster and i was in college and i couldn't you know i, I didn't have this thing connected to ethernet it was all like apple talk networks and my you know 9600 baud modem and all that other stuff but the power of this computer and the color monitor made this thing viable for way longer than it had to be. Uh, it's my favorite Mac ever. I still have my original IC30 upstairs. I think it looks great. I think it is the perfect embodiment of the Snow White design language. It do- mm-hmm. is not as busy as the SE because it doesn't have an, even an option for the second floppy drive. So they could just do clean pinstripes on the top where the hard drive was and have the floppy drive below that. I love it. It was great. So my first Mac was an SE. And I'm putting these together because they're 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 the cousins, and I, I think this whole era was like the flowering of the Mac, where this is the taking that original concept and then starting to iterate on it. And the SE is the whatever fourth generation essentially of that, but it's it's different. It's got more expandability, and now it's got a hard drive built into it, at least optionally for the SE, and it's got the the right set of ports on the back. And like this, to me, it's like this is where the Mac. Like go leaves leaves prehistory leaves like BC and enters AD. It's it's that that kind of crossover moment with these models. That's how I was asked to justify my choice of the SE and SE thirty earlier today, and that's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, this was in an era when people were using Macs to do serious work, but all Macs were too slow. And mm-hmm. so when you got this Mac. You're like, I'm going to do the same work that I was doing before, but oh my God, everything feels so much faster in, in a way that, that, you know, people don't experience that today because you buy a new Mac today and it's like 10% faster for something. But if you had an SE and then upgraded to an SE30 and ran PageMaker or something, you notice the difference. You would never, you just throw that SE out the window. Like I'm never touching that computer again because if I have an actual job to do, this computer is so much faster. And again, you could get a big giant Mac too, but they cost so much more money and they were bigger and you had to get a screen with it. And it was just, it was a whole other class. This was just saying like, if you're still, if you're still down here with me with the nine screen and the monochrome and you just want the ultimate Mac. And when I say Mac, I mean, Mac as in the original iconic Mac, this is it. This was the pinnacle. Yeah. I I was saying to somebody the other day talking about this, that my experience using a, an SC30, which I only used a, a handful of times, um, I think I ended up, and I'm not sure if this is exactly the example, but this is the example I always give, which is um, 
in PageMaker, you command click would force a hundred percent view. So you'd zoom in and all the Greek text would suddenly become visible text and all your graphics would, and it would have to redraw it all. And the real test, like, am I on an SE with a full page display or am I on a 2FX or a 2CX? You do that. And on the SE, it would be like white, start to draw. And it would take a while to draw. And on a fast Mac, you'd go click and it would go bloop. And it was all there. And I remember using an SE30 and I don't remember exactly what it, whether it was that or something else, but I used the SE30 and I did a I did a thing and expected it to behave like an SE. And I went, oh, <laughs> it was like a visceral, like, oh no, this is an SE30. It's like so much, so much faster, so much better. Just, just like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I assumed it was just an SE. It was not. It was shocking how it was not. And remember, this power just had to drive a whatever it was, 542 by, no, 342 by 512, whatever the resolution of the monitor was, monochrome display. This was a computer innards that were able to drive, as evidenced by me installing that extra card, able to drive a much larger color display. But yeah. in stock configuration, it didn't have to. So it it laughed at redrawing that screen. How many pixels do I have to draw? And they're all monochrome? Pff, I'll be done instantly. Everything about it was fast and snappy and wonderful and powerful and this also kind of marks the end of the era when every new macintosh was better than all previous macintoshes in all possible ways had better sound chip it had a bigger faster hard drive had a bigger faster floppy disk right it just any part that could be improved was improved eventually after this they had to start diversifying the models and say look we can't do that all the time we have to actually have some models that are intentionally less powerful for less money but this Mm -hmm. was the end of that road yeah, like the 2SI, and you had the, the, the Mac Classic, which was the, essentially an SE continuation, and they, they, you know, they brought the prices down, and, and all for good reasons, but you're right. That's, that's why, I, like I said it before, I kind of view the SE and SE30 as like year zero, or year one, I guess, um, of like that, that era starts there, and then, because the other ones are great, the, the plus 512 and 128, but like, that's sort of the Mac figuring out what it is. And then these are like, oh, we got it now. We're rolling. And 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 then they started to iterate and all of that. I think it's just a great a great era. Yeah, and the this design was the language la- is beautiful. This was the last time a computer that looked like this would be taken seriously. Also yes. because like the classic was like it's right in the name. It's like, ah, oh, it's retro. Remember when Macs used to yeah. be like this and it's fun and it's cute. And even the color classic, which is an interesting and impressive computer, but it's like, okay, but if you're gonna do page maker, you're not gonna get one of these things. You're gonna get one of the other quote-unquote real Macs, right? But no one said that about the SE30. It was absolutely taken seriously because this is what the Mac was like, even though the you know the 2 existed and there was the 2X. Uh, after this, I mean, you can kind of tell, this: the front of this computer is flat. The front of the computer, uh, the classic, is rounded and friendly because it's a retro callback. Again, like car styling, where they make a, a car that looks like uh, a famous car from several decades ago. But it's weird and curvier and more rounded. That's what the classic was. But this was the real thing. This is this was the model that the classic was hearkening back to. This this form factor, this shape, and this particular one was the most powerful one of those. I think we got it. Did an hour again. Finally found your email with the list. Oh, great. It's, it's in one long sentence. Yes, it is. It's not even bulleted points. I no, and I, I, I um, reordered them too. Mm-hmm. to see, 
keep the order secret. Keep me on Whatever. my toes, yeah. Right. Um Did we do all twenty? Are we done now or is that? No, this is more? this is number two of three. So the top five will be in late October, maybe. Uh, are these ordered? I was it wasn't clear to me. You said the whole thing, these are twenty max, these are twenty yes. are they ordered? They are. It's a countdown. Hmm. Well, that's kind of a confusing countdown when I have to revisit what your justification was for the for the selections, but it's not best and it's not, it's not favorite. Notable. Hmm. Most it's my notable? ranking. Most, yes, most notable Max of history. Most notable, potent, potable. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Chopin Goatable. Sorry, not not notable. Deleting this page from Wikipedia. Yes. It's, how, it's, how, is you know, the, how is the Mac portable as high up as it is then? Because we just did the Mac portable now. That's more notable than the computers we did last time? Yes. Yeah, because it's so weird. <laughs> it's so strange. And the SE thirty is not in the in the, the third segment. Oh, well, I guess it's, it's, not, it's I guess not. It's not. It's not notable. I guess, suppose unless you're a Mac enthusiast. I mean, I that's that's the balance, right? Is that I ha- I literally had somebody say, "Why do you even care about the SE?" Mm-hmm. And I had answers, but I have other people who are like, "The SE is the best Mac ever." So, yeah, but, but is it notable? If you're, yeah, if, you're well, using, if you're using notability, but, like I mean, but I the assume... noti- for me, the notability is a is a completely made up by me mixture of good or bad or weird or introduced interesting technology had a major effect on apple or on the mac in some way like it's a concoction Mm -hmm. of all of those things where i i think like and and also this is an excuse for me to tell some stories about these Mm -hmm. things so and have people argue and that that's fine but what i didn't want to do the reason i didn't want to do best is because best is going to be a boring list because First off, most of the bests are going to be recent in many ways, unless you decide to build like an algorithm where you kind of handicapped like best yeah, during their like era and all like that. Best at the time. Like if you were alive right. at the time and you assessed this computer, what were its strengths and weaknesses? Yeah. And, and that's really together as a product. And, and that itself is going to fall apart and become a something where how you define it is going to make that list come out the way you want it. And I, I did. I really did want this list to include the weirdos. Mm-hmm. Um, that are notable because they're so strange, and those are go- and those are good stories to tell. Because yeah, I, I originally conceived of this as like t- twenty best max or something. I was like, I don't, yeah, I think I want to do you're that. To take out the adjective. Look, it's twenty max. You it's twenty max for twenty twenty. And, and even that, you're messing up a little bit. A, but in a top celebration. Four yes. Well, I I am I am going to even there. It's yeah. Twenty I wanna, asterisk max. I want. Well, yeah. Well, wait until I do the Daystar Digital. Uh, one which is next week two weeks two weeks no it might be next week and people are gonna be like that's not even a mac like shut up <laughs> it's it's a good story that's all that matters it's a good story yeah you should, you should slide the email in there so you really blow people's minds hmm. that's for that's for 2021 also not a mac <laughs> not a mac 